0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you
1: the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
2: I was all set to give a, a happy and warm Welcome to everybody and I am pleased that so many are joining us and then about three hours ago we had um, a mass shooting in the United States, I should say again, where um, 18 children elementary school second, third and fourth graders uh, were shot to death and three adults in a school in Texas and obviously that weighs heavily on all of our hearts and um, you know it's important that we not allow this kind of thing to be normalized because it happens so often um, in the United States, and it's 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 crushing. And, and um, you know we are here, of course, to talk about about what is going on in China. But it's impossible to begin this program, and I know all the panelists um, are, you know, join me in and with our hearts and with our, you know with sympathy for the families of the victims, which is which is uh, you know obviously an enormous tragedy. Um, but let's have our members program, which is supplementing our members meeting, which took place this afternoon. This is happening because we've just awakened Ben Harburg, I think. Where are you, Ben? Are you in the Mideast, I'm told, or are you in Singapore? I'm in the Middle East. Uh, so we really are waking you. It's four o'clock in the morning there? That's right. Well, you are a laodong mo fang, and as, as, uh, Paul, fortunately, has arrived from Singapore back into Washington, D.C. So what I'll do is is give two sentence introductions for each of our panelists. They are intended to represent the new generation in the National Committee, that these are Uh, mostly our youngest board members. They are all members of the board of directors of the national committee and all very productive members of the board. Uh, Paul Hanley holds the Maurice Greenberg director's chair at Carnegie China. I think we know Maurice Greenberg and is currently based in Singapore as a visiting senior research fellow at the East Asian Institute of National University of Singapore. Uh, ben Harburg is managing partner at MSA Capital, which is a global investment firm with over $2 billion in assets under management. He's based in Beijing, uh, but as you just heard, is joining us from the Mideast today, and he leads global investments at his firm. Elizabeth Knupp has served as the regional director and chief representative in China for the Ford Foundation since 2013. Wow, it's a long time now. Overseeing the foundation's grant-making related to China and operations in the country. Most importantly, of course, she is a former National Committee staff member. Uh, Nancy Yao has served as president of the Museum of Chinese in America since 2015. That's also much longer than I remembered. Since joining MOCA. Uh, she was she, before joining MoCA, she was the executive director of the Yale China Association. So let's start. Obviously, our president was just in Asia. Um, Paul spending a good part of his time in Singapore these days. Um, let's kick off with Paul talking about kind of the view from Southeast Asia and somewhat the macro uh Geopolitical setting in Asia. Then we'll go to Elizabeth. Then we'll go to Nancy, and then we'll go to Ben, assuming he's had a cup of coffee to wake himself up at that time. But Paul, let me turn it over to you.
3: Well, thank you very much, Steve, um, and thanks for the opportunity to address the members uh, and to serve on the panel with uh, with some of my closest friends. You know. Um, Steve, as you know, and I think many of our members know, a lot has changed in the U.S.-China relationship. I worked in the National Security Council in the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And at that time, you know, there were frictions emerging in the relationship, no doubt. Um, But engagement was the primary orientation of our policy toward China. And, you know, the main thrust of our policy really was to try to integrate China into the regional order and the international political and economic architecture um, commensurate with China's growing you know, wealth and, and power uh, and pushing China to play a you know, responsible role rather than to try to free ride on, on the architecture that it, it had benefited from or worse yet to try to overturn it. But since leaving the White House, uh, as you indicate, I've been in the region now for more than a decade, uh, running the Carnegie uh, China Center in Beijing and now in Singapore. And there's been significant shifts in the relationship. Tensions uh, and risks have expanded across a number of domains, whether it's economic, technological, political, military, even ideological. Um, and I remember at the beginning of the Trump administration, Richard Haas summing it up quite well when he said he was hard pressed to think of another American consensus uh, in foreign policy that has moved as far and as fast as the U.S. consensus on China. Um, and so we're all having to deal with this. But, you know, um, at Carnegie China, just like the National Committee, we do a lot of uh, track two a dialogue with our Chinese interlocutors. And one of the things that I just wanted to say up front that is I find uh, quite striking is how the narratives in China and the U.S. about what's driving the downturn in the relationship are so different. Um, And in China, of course, there's a tendency to attribute the downturn in the relationship to this idea of the Thucydides trap, that it's the natural result of this diminishing US power, rising China power. And China views the United States as reacting to a growing China and trying to contain China. Um, And what we hear often is you know, that uh, the blame is uh, put on the Trump administration, and it's up to the US and the Biden administration in particular to to untie the knot, reset the relationship. In the US, as you know, there's a very different view. US officials point to, you know, worrisome trends in China's domestic and foreign policies that have led to reassessment of bilateral relations in uh, Washington. Um, And so, you know, that creates a bit of a, of a a difficult environment to try to make progress on, and we find ourselves uh, in a bit of a stalemate. And frankly, uh, the you know China's uh, actions with regard to the war in Ukraine and its uh, strategic partnership with Russia in that context are adding further strains to the U.S.-China relationship. Um, the Biden administration, and I, I'll just say very quickly, has tried to respond to these changes in China's foreign and domestic policy by investing in domestic renewal, uh, also by rallying allies and partners, and a big part of the president's trip to Asia this week and meetings in Japan and Tokyo and uh, Japan and and Korea, and of course with the Quad leaders was part of that. Um, The end goal of the strategy, I do not believe, is to contain China is something that we often hear from our our Chinese interlocutors. Uh, But rather, I think it is is, uh, really a goal around supporting the international institutions and norms that have contributed to rising peace and prosperity across across the globe since the end of World War II. Um, Norms like the rule of law, free and fair trade, peaceful resolution of disputes, human rights, freedom of navigation. And while the the Biden administration has accepted this new framing, not engagement, but strategic competition. And they've also, I think, accepted a lot of the Trump administration's assessment in terms of the challenges that China presents to the US. I do believe the Biden administration is trying to craft a less ad hoc, uh, more effective and, and strategic approach to competing with China. Let me end there, Stephen, happy to take questions later.
2: Great overview to kick it off.
3: Elizabeth, by the way, when did you
2: talk about what's going on in the NGO sector and how that's kind of influencing the whole US China relationship?
1: Oh, okay. So, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And I think, you know, in listening to Paul, NGOs tend to sit in the middle of whatever the US-China relationship happens to be, right? So we now find ourselves as NGOs trying to find a role to play in the kind of relationship that Paul has just outlined and described. Um, And just a small anecdote, as you pointed out, Steve, I started working at Ford in 2013 and before I took the job, I talked to all my predecessors, um, including Peter Geithner, Tony Sage, and to tell you the truth, at the time, I, I felt a little bit disappointed because I thought at the time that I was not going to have the opportunity to lead the foundation through a drastic political moment in China the way they were able to, and that I would never have any good stories to tell my successors. But that, of course, hasn't been the case. Things have changed dramatically um, for the way NGOs can operate. And I think, I think a couple points that I want to make. Number one is, um, I think we all know that Within the last my tenure at Ford, in the last eight or nine years, China has finally arrived um, at a place it's been heading towards since 2008, which was kind of closing out the period of reform and opening, a time when it was welcoming of um, of foreign ideas, resources, expertise to come and help support Chinese domestic social and political reform, and that era has ended right? So they're no longer interested in our participation in domestic processes of social change. Instead, China's now going out. Uh, China has really crafted for itself. It it believes it has um, a successful development experience to share with others, and others actually believe the same thing. There is an attraction to a system like China's, which is incredibly well-governed, if not authoritarian, through authoritarian means, market-driven economy, leading to stability and development in, in China, that looks very attractive. And there's a pull factor from Global South countries really wanting China to help them figure out how to do the same thing. And China, as Paul said, is pushing to have more of a role in shaping multilateral institutions and systems. And so in this moment, it's really an opportunity for NGOs to engage around China programming that is about China's role in the world as opposed to trying to look at change that's happening inside China. So many NGOs, the Ford Foundation included, are really trying to look at the manner in which China is behaving internationally, holding it accountable to high standards of transparency, accountability, international norms, the way Paul is talking, and also um, really trying to think about the con- shaping the context into which Chinese power is going. So for example, um, is there a way to build knowledge and capacity among global actors to understand China better and to be able to respond to China with strategic from strategic self-interest and with knowledge, right? So that's kind of where I think there's a real opportunity for NGOs. Who can no longer do as much domestically in China to really be able to participate in um, engaging with China as China comes out into the world. And I have a, a few more um, other comments I was going to make, but I don't want to take up too much time. But one thing I've been thinking about, and I'd be really interested if anybody wanted to pick up on this, is you know we've always say the U.S.-China relationship is quote the most consequential relationship in the world, and I just wonder if that's still true, if that sentence is still something that's true, if that binary framing of U.S.-China relations is that keeps us stuck in a relation, in sort of trying to dig ourselves out of a relationship that right now feels quite stuck and and difficult to move, um, while the rest of the world is spinning and things are happening and we really need to be responding to them. And if we were somehow to change the frame to sort of think about China as a cross-cutting kind of factor across geographies, across issue areas, across thematic areas, and not as one part of a solution, but not the only part of a solution, if that would help us sort of shift our thinking a little bit to try to find different pathways To what I think we all want, which is a world where we can work together multilaterally to solve big problems that are facing us like pandemics and food security and migration and all kinds of issues that are really important that we look at. So I'm wondering to myself, are we stuck in this framing that we might want to rethink? That's probably the wrong thing to say to the national committee on us generation <laughs> <laughs> membership but i thought it was something to throw out there so thanks yeah. very much i'll stop
2: elizabeth here. we don't re- we're not working on the most important bilateral relationship in the world i i, I will well since i ha- since i have four directors here and they're all in the position to fire me Tomorrow, in fact, when we have our board of directors, I may have to be restrained in what I say tonight. Of course, they all know that's impossible, but <laughs> let me turn it over uh, to Nancy. Um, go ahead, on, on okay. kind of the effect on Chinese in the United States, Chinese Americans, yeah. what's going on there.
0: Yeah, and, and just grateful to Steve and everyone on this call that I think the just the inclusion of my perspective coming from the Chinese American one is relatively new. Um, And I think it's a critical one and always has been, um, but it's only been recently that we've really tried to integrate it into the US-China policy conversation. So no surprise to anyone on this call, over 10,000 Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes uh, since uh, the former administration first called it a foreign virus in March, 2020. Um, I think it was March 13th, I think I marked the date. Um, Subsequently, a few days later he called the foreign virus and then he called the Kung flu. Um, No surprise to anyone on this call, but I think what we realize is in some ways there's there's a combined factor change here that we're seeing in the Chinese American population. The 2020 census came out, fastest growing group of people in this country of Asian ancestry, but they're not just coming from China, India, um, South Korea, uh, Japan, they're coming from over 20 countries. But of that growing Asian population, 25% are of Chinese ancestry. So you've got 5.5 million Chinese living in this country under naturalized or formal citizenship. And they're a critical population within this in, in this part. Potentially more, I would suggest as a potential target rather than an integrator into US-China foreign policy formation. And I say that because we've seen that historically that the US-China, that bilateral relationship has an impact on people of Chinese ancestry in this country. We've seen it also with Japanese Americans during World War II when 120,000 of them were interned. Uh, We saw that the lack of recognition for Chinese in this country, even though they've made significant contributions. And I think the current situation is that Chinese Americans do have a very um, significant stake in the relationship. Um, And we see them more transnational today than ever before. But the truth is, is the characteristic of this population has always been transnational. So 250 years of sort of going from here to there, it's not just in the last 20, 30 years that we've seen this. So what does that mean? It just calls for greater complexity. Uh, A lot of people have homes in Shanghai, in Hong Kong, in Naring County. Uh, They've got a place in New York. They're much more global. They have many, many more homes. They're much more integrated, both in the U.S. They have their children at Chote. They have their children in Groton, they have their children in all the private schools. And yet they're trying to navigate between their business in Hong Kong, in Shenzhen and in Shanghai. This is creates massive complexities um, for our just entire relationship that I think we don't integrate enough. And I'm glad that the national committee sees it as important.
2: We should talk about it later, but it appears in looking at some of the polling the a- analysis of the Australian elections that the Australian Chinese community seemed to have turned against the um, incumbent party and moved to the new party where, where we have a new prime minister, partly because of the what were perceived as the overly anti-China rhetoric of the former government that the economic ties, apparently, and kind of the increase of what the Chinese community in Australia felt was racism. It was truly fascinating. The analysis of various districts showed that the swing vote was actually Australian Chinese. It was, it was a fascinating analysis and that swing may have been enough to elect the new government. There obviously were other issues, but it was very interesting that I don't know what the Chinese or the Australian Chinese Chinese population in Australia is, um, but apparently in these particular districts where this analysis that I read um, talked about was that they swung the district. Um, Great, Ben, uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Coffee now and. um, Talk about the business community's view from Beijing, even though you're now a couple of
3: weeks out of Beijing?
4: Yeah, about 10 days, 10, 10, 12 days. Um, Unequivocally, one of the most challenging moments, I think, in the US-China business um, interaction. It's uh, obviously commencing with the decoupling actions in, in 2016, 2017. It's been essentially a one directional flow Uh, of of disengagement when it comes to talent flows, uh, capital markets, uh, equity and capital flows, um, uh, the the talent, both researchers, uh, students, and of course, uh, companies. Um, And uh, and then obviously from a more of a policy and regulatory level, again, and uh, generally an increasingly negative picture uh, that's not only affected by the U.S.-China dynamic, uh, but also exacerbated by everything from the COVID lockdowns to uh, global technology and, and capital market slowdowns. Um, and so, I would I would say certainly as a as a business uh, as a business leader operating in China today, one of one of the most challenging periods. And not all of the factors, obviously, directly as a result of of government policy. Uh, but also uh, as a result of a lot of the macro factors, be it COVID, uh, be it uh, Russia, Ukraine. Um, uh, but it's, it's a really challenging moment and one where, uh, again, uh, there's been just a steady outflow of uh, US and, and overall expatriate um, uh, business individuals operating here in China. Uh, very few friends left on the ground uh, and those that are are, are making in many instances plans to leave maybe not permanently but certainly um, uh, certainly in the in the interim given the current situation and the challenges of doing business on the ground again largely largely due to COVID. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment where it's, it's harder and harder as a business leader to explain to external partners, be they investors or um, otherwise, uh, the rationale of of a lot of the actions going on on the ground in China, uh, particularly with regard to to COVID uh, regulatory interventions in both domestic as well as global companies operating in China, uh, to explain, you know, the, uh, issues around um, items like delistings of, of Chinese companies in the United States. And it just feels that every day, those business ties that bound us, which were in many ways, some of the most politically agnostic uh, or objective uh, and often many times uh, productive and, and, and constructive are constantly being pulled apart. Again, on a, due to a combination of both uh economic factors as well as um as moral and political considerations which have driven uh, businesses away from china and capital away from china and obviously we're in a moment where we've seen record outflows of inve- global investors obviously particularly western and, and american investors uh, in china and again a lot of it driven just by challenges uh, domestically and because of uh, regulatory and overall macro considerations but also because of um challenges and pressures that those businesses are feeling and facing from uh, from their home uh, constituents uh, and investors and otherwise. And so um, a, a really challenging moment and one that we are constantly updating and assessing how to explain and provide uh, optimistic um, uh, environment and, and takes to, uh, to understand where there might be light at the end of the tunnel with regard to uh, regulatory interventions, delistings, COVID lockdown policies, uh, China's stance on um, on Russia, uh, and uh, and and therefore um, keeping us busy day to day, as we both try to continue to invest and be uh, productive um, uh, uh, representatives of our home countries and provide transparency um, and and oftentimes a, a counter. Uh, narrative to what is being espoused in the media, again, with regard to what's going on on the ground here in China, um, day to day, uh, both from a business as well as just overall lifestyle perspective, um, while uh, while coping with those, uh, those challenges.
2: Well, you've touched on Ben, you've touched on kind of my first question. Um, You know, tomorrow, I will tell you along with the rest of the board of directors of the committee that I don't know when I will go back to China. You know, it has now been far and away the longest period of time I have spent outside of China since 1979. So it's it's been and I cannot tell you. So my question when I will go back. So my question for each of you is when do you plan to go back and what factors are going to affect that decision? And I'd like each of you to answer that. Start with Paul.
3: Sure, it's a great question, Steve. Um, and we were, you know, my family and I were disappointed not to be able to go back to China. Um, but you know, the zero COVID policies uh, and beyond that, you know, the worsening, you know, political environment are, are cause for concern. You know, my my goal is to go back to China as early as as it is possible. And the goal for Carnegie China is to continue to do as much on the ground in Beijing, alongside Chinese experts and scholars as is possible in the current conditions. And unfortunately, it is not the same today uh, as it was over the 10 plus year period that we've been operating there. Uh, where we operated with a pretty high degree of of autonomy. Um, I think we, I will say we observed um, prior to COVID uh, a more restrictive environment. Of course, you have the case of uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, um, and that was quite concerning. Um, Those trends that we saw before COVID I think uh, intensified and picked up in speed during COVID. Um, when China is going to open up, um, when it will get beyond the zero COVID measures, but more importantly, I think is the, is the question of whether or not China, uh, to what degree China will open up and welcome folks like us back uh, to be able to do the important work that, that we do. Uh, we're going to go back as as quickly as we possibly can, Uh, perhaps by the end of this year, maybe early 2023. Um, But we just don't know. But we want to continue. We've got an important partnership with Tsinghua. We care deeply about that. And we want to do as much as we can, um, as, as much as the conditions will allow.
1: Elizabeth. Oh, I have a ticket on June 25th to return to China. it will be my third time back um, during the COVID period. So, uh, so I have been going sort of back and forth about six months at a time uh, throughout the whole period. And sort of the way I think about it for myself is number one, our team is there. The Ford Foundation has all its operations on the ground that continue to you know, do their work. Uh, it's important for me to be there. Part of my job is uh, to be the ambassador of the Ford Foundation with various stakeholders inside China and and up until this lockdown in Beijing, I was able to do that. I could meet with people. I could um, just represent the Ford Foundation at meetings and convenings. I could join panels, et cetera. I could do all of that and that was really important. Uh, It's important for me to understand, to have a sense of what is really going on instead of reading, getting all my information from Twitter, Uh, it's important to really try to talk to people to see how far you can get in those kinds of conversations. And and part of my job is also just to pick up data points here and there to try to figure out the operating space for an organization like the Ford Foundation. And the only way you can have your spidey sense working is if you're actually in the country. I also um, really try to um, I get concerned about a rising sort of narrative of of risk and threat uh, that that I hear a lot in the United States about going back. And I and I, you know, I am in a particular situation where I don't feel very much at personal risk. I certainly feel that if I was in such a risk, the system would let me know that before something bad happened. Um, and I and I don't want us all to become so worried about going back to China that when the opportunity comes, we don't go. Because I do think it's possible to go, it's possible to talk to people, it's possible to do certain kinds of constructive work. Um, And that's why I I wanna, I I can go back. I have the, the visa status to go back. And so I would certainly wanna keep doing that as much as I can.
2: Nancy, do you have a plan to go back?
0: Yeah, I think what might be useful from my perspective is actually those who are coming out, um, and you know, since my work is looking at Chinese American oral histories here, there is actually quite a number of people who I'm sure maybe some of you others uh, others have dealt with this. Classmates from business school who are international Chinese students, those who have worked and been colleagues with us in in Hong Kong or in Beijing, and I'm seeing a flux of communications coming out and feeling that they're very displaced and needing the pressure, especially with young children um, who are in school systems that they no longer trust and in systems that they no longer feel comfortable because maybe they're married to a US citizen, um, but they never sought citizenship with their Chinese um, citizenship and, and others who are really feeling the pressure to make a life decision at this moment and have left all their paper and documents back in their apartment in Shanghai, but are now here and with two days notice have left their home. And obviously we cannot call them in any way refugees, but they're sort of putting it in quotes in terms of this displacement that's happened. And that's because they're trying to protect their family that's in three different places and they're feeling very, very anxious. And I think there's going to be a reckoning of those sort of, I don't know, is it cultural revolution 2.0? Is it a a, a desire for some of the Western educated intellectuals to leave China at this point? Um, I don't know, they're sort of joking about it facetiously, and I'm being very honest, but I think that those are interesting conversations.
4: Mm-hmm. Ben, when are you going to go back? Uh, I, I'll go back as, you know, I, I so I, I came, I left by choice. I didn't at all feel endangered in any way. Again, to Elizabeth's point, I think it's critical that as many of us are on the ground as possible. Um, the, um, you know, the, the the lack of ability of of, of China investors and, and business leaders, of China watchers, academics, students to be on the ground in China, media members has really exacerbated a lot of the generalizations, misperceptions around China. Talked with several ambassadors from you know leading Western countries when it comes to engagement with China. And many of them have no, um, National media representatives on the ground in China right now—they're they're reporting on China from Tokyo and from Seoul and from other um, uh, from other geographies that are uh, in many ways on uh, could be on the moon for all the matters. And so um, I, I came out just because it was efficient to do so and enabled us to. I, I hadn't been out of China in two and a half years and wanted to see my family and and also obviously our investors and provide in-person in um, views also on what's going on in China so that people don't feel like I'm being filtered um, or, or self-censoring in any way. And the reality is actually most of what I've said while I'm on the ground is the same what I'll say when I'm with you in person in New York or Washington or London. Um, so I'll go back as uh, you know as hopefully if, if there's a little bit of a change in the, in the quarantine policy, which is really the biggest hurdle for me, um, uh, but I would really encourage anyone who can, as Elizabeth said, that have uh, the visa to go It is you know, uh, up until literally th- 65 days ago, the perception in, was that we were living in a paradise in China, right, that we had uh, essentially largely full travel um, flexibility internally and, and, um, you know, we were as a, as a firm back in the office Uh, with full staff since May 2020. And so um, it's easy to kind of have a really short term memory and think that things are disastrous right now. But the reality is things have been very stable and pleasant living in China over the last two years, but with a steady stream of, of outflows of people that just lost their travel connectivity to the rest of the world Um, and obviously exacerbated by the events, particularly in Shanghai, because Beijing is not under any similar conditions to Shanghai, although it's a bit of a a creeping lockdown. So it was more efficient for us to leave the country when we did, um, just from a business and and personal perspective, but we will be back uh, in the fall. The bubble.
2: That was created I mean, Ben, absolutely, that there was this freedom within China, but obviously going in and out was, was quite difficult. I think as Nancy has made reference to, we're beginning to see a trickle of Chinese coming from China to the United States, even though they know they have to quarantine if they go back, but they've, for business reasons, for personal reasons, for kids' graduations, for a whole variety of reasons, they have come. And that's actually become uh, a very good source of kind of information of what is going on in China, that having dinners, which ordinarily would be two hours are are four hours. How much do you think though, Ben, and I guess this is for everyone, the lack of people-to-people Uh, contact? Because the international travel, I think the China statistic is down 98%. I mean, it was enormous travel to the United States. I mean, there are virtually no flights. How much of that caused the downturn in US-China relations? That the absence of people-to-people contact led in part to this deterioration? Because it's easy to demonize people that you're not sitting in the same room with. Do, do, do you folks see that at all?
4: Uh, uh, certainly, it's exacerbated. I mean, a lot of those narratives were already existing amongst kind of you know Western political elites, amongst media, uh, uh, you know, that were covering China. And so, I, I wouldn't say that it's you know it's been um, you know completely driven by the lack of human human exchanges. But it's 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 massive. I mean, you don't have people from the west particularly from the united states today they can speak with a, a high degree of clarity on what they're experiencing on the ground in china which is frankly in many instances very different than what's you know as being promoted on twitter and being promoted in media you know there are as, as i understood there was something on the order of only you know 50 or 75 american students who were granted visas to, the, to china in in the last academic year um, you know, as I said, you have China watchers who now will not have touched ground in China for three years. And so it's that much harder to sit in front of an audience in Washington or London or New York and tell them hand on heart that what people are seeing in the media or what's being espoused by someone who has a, a kind of a, an agenda on China that's counterproductive and maybe more self-serving say that what, they are, you know, that, that what they're describing is inaccurate. Um, and, and, and so therefore, you know, it's, it is making it harder and harder to find voices that can speak up for pragmatism, constructivism, and, and overall, um, look for positives in the relationship because, because people are not able to speak from a a degree of, of certainty and so it's it's massive and something that has to be reconciled. And a lot of it obviously is on the way it sits with the Chinese to open it up and make it easier for visa issuances and flow of students, uh, flow of researchers, flow of business leaders and something I've called on uh, there and, and the business community have called on as well.
3: Elizabeth, Paul. I would, I would just, I mean, I I agree with Ben. I think it exacerbates the situation. You know, the latest, Pew survey that was released on U.S. domestic views of China, which was at the end of April, um, the unfavorability views of Americans towards China went up again. Um, 82%, I think it was this time, Americans having a negative view. But of all the questions, and I alluded to this in my opening remarks, and it's not surprising, I'm from the Carnegie Endowment, I take a look at geopolitics quite closely. Of all the questions that were asked, Respondents said that China's partnership with Russia was the most serious problem for the United States. So, you know, in my view, it is also clear uh, that, you know, China's sort of tacit support for Russia, you know, the no limits strategic partnership announced less than three weeks before Russia's invasion of Ukraine is putting much more strain on the relationship, on on a relationship that was already strained and I think is having an impact as well on public opinion. And interestingly, we hear the same uh, coming out of Europe. Uh, we just did a Carnegie Global Dialogue recently uh, on China-Europe and we looked at the Ukrainian crisis um, and the European expert that was on uh, talked about you know, a major rethink in Brussels, uh, talked about the China-EU summit and Joseph Burrell who described the China-EU summit as a dialogue of the deaf. Um, and before the summit, you know, China didn't want to even discuss Ukraine, but of course, European officials view that as very vital to their uh, interests in, in terms of European security. So I think these geopolitical questions are also having quite a big impact on opinions of China as well. Elizabeth, Nancy, anything to add on those?
1: I don't have much to add. I guess I, would, I have a pet theory that You know the fact that very few up until recently very few Chinese um, intellectuals think tankers U.S. watchers were able to get out of China and go anywhere not only to the U.S. they weren't going to Europe they just weren't engaging with any of their global counterparts I believe led to a bit of a lack of intelligence about what was happening in the world What was Putin really doing on the border with Ukraine? How was Europe thinking about Ukraine? And I I just wonder if China's, the way it stepped into this relationship with Russia was in part because it was a little bit uninformed about what the global discourse really was. And because they have nobody going out to talk to any of their counterparts, except on a Zoom track two dialogue, which we all know is good but limited in terms of what you're able to share and exchange. And I I think it's important that this is hurting China as much as it's hurting the rest of us to really not be able to understand the world that they believe that they are an important player in the world. They have to be able to understand it and they aren't really allowing their people to go out at. at the moment to really try to understand it. I mean, I hopefully the people who are coming out that Nancy's talking about are really gonna be able to help bring some information back into inside China, so.
3: Nancy, on that one. Just a quick two finger, if I could. I mean, I will say, you know, one of the things we hear in our track two dialogues is that even though you can't see it uh, in terms of China's propaganda or state media or official statements, from Chinese officials about their position on, on, on Ukraine and on, on Russia, that there is a pretty vigorous debate going on among the elites. And that we hear quite often. Uh, a lot of it over WeChat, a lot of it over dinners. Um, and I think there's a view that it was a pretty significant mistake uh, that, that China for China to align so closely with Russia, just prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I don't. I think the Chinese leadership was quite surprised. China had six thousand citizens in Ukraine, and they certainly weren't alerted that they would be in danger. And I don't think that would be the case if the Chinese leadership had a better sense. But then that also, of course, raises questions about the strategic partnership that it has with Russia. So in either case, it's not a good. Um, it's it's not a good factor. But uh, I do. Well, think- I, I agree.
2: I agree with your analysis. Does the U.S. government?
3: I don't know, but I no, don't know.
2: We, we, we're saying that, the U.S. Yeah. government unnamed senior officials have said that, that the Chinese knew that this was going to happen.
3: Well, I'm not sure that to them it matters um, to a certain extent. It matters what Xi Jinping knew if he knew that Putin was going to do a full scale invasion. Uh, didn't alert uh, anyone to it, or even Chinese citizens, of course, that has significant ramifications. I suspect that the US government thinks that he knew something was going to happen and sort of gave it some tacit approval, maybe a limited incursion into Donbass. I suspect that Xi Jinping told, I, I suspect that Putin told Xi Jinping one thing, whatever I do, I won't do it during your Olympics. And that may have been good enough for President Xi to accept. And he probably didn't really want to get into too much about what Putin was going to do. And Putin probably didn't want to share too much of what he was going to do with Xi Jinping either for fear that he would get a negative reaction.
2: Every track two I had that the National Committee had leading up to the invasion, every Chinese I spoke with denied That Russia was going to invade. They fund like a lot of our intelligence community, they fundamentally didn't believe it. Also, Xi Jinping did not meet alone with Putin. You know, Wang Yi was present. There were others present. Those notes get circled, as you know, Paul, from your days at the NSC. Those notes don't don't stay within, you know, with three people. So I think the US thought that China knew and tacitly approved and set a a time, you know, a time limitation has to wait till after the Olympics. I, I'm pretty skeptical of that. The poll, by the way, I see Jason has posted the Pew poll. I have an interview with the pollster on that particular poll, so anybody can can click on it, and it is, it is, it is the worst polling for China in history in terms of negative views. Poll is absolutely right one of the questions I raised with the pollster was they went out in the field, uh, and I'm going to get my dates, on March 21st. Uh, They didn't publish till April, but they went out in March. On the day that Blinken said, uh, we understand that the Chinese are considering, are open to considering selling military weapons to the Russian military. Well, if I'm an American citizen and I read that in USA today, I kind of go, wow, the Russia China relationship is the scariest thing in the world. Well, it turned out either the intelligence, either the interpretation of the intelligence was imperfect, or the Chinese decided they considered it and they said, we ain't going to do it because they didn't do it. You know, the Chinese have actually lived up to our sanctions you know, they've complied with our sanctions, even though our government says, we have no evidence that they have not complied. Really? The way I would say that is we complied. Um, but also the other part of this is we've, um, you know, the, the polling, the EU did this poll, which is also now posted, I think, um, on Chinese views of the U.S. Europe and others, and as negative as the American public's views have turned towards China, the Chinese public views have similarly uh, turned towards the United States with, you know, the United States being, I think it's at the least favorite place for anybody to visit with Russia being the most, which seems inconsistent with my understanding of the way Chinese thinks, but it's been so many... You know, as I said at the beginning of this program, it's been 29 months since, since I uh, set foot there. Um, Paul, talk about how the president's trip, uh, which just concluded tonight um, to Tokyo and Korea kind of effect, affected U.S.-China relations. And obviously the meeting of the Quad, that was Tokyo time this afternoon.
3: Well, I think Biden's trip, of course, was meant to, you know, reassure Japan, South Korea, the Quad, that in a sense, you know, despite, despite the war in Ukraine, that the administration remains committed to its allies and partners uh, in Asia. Uh, during the the trip, President Biden reinforced the importance of maintaining strong ties with allies and partners in the region, and of course. This wasn't always the case in the previous administration under President Trump. Um, of course, the headlines uh, that have come out uh, of the visit are all about uh, Biden's Taiwan gaffe, or maybe not a gaffe. But um, you know, I think it's his. 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 It, he's he's prone to gaffes, but he's made this one four or five times, as far as I can tell. Uh, and at this point, I, I think we can we can. I would conclude that Biden's remarks um, are not necessarily a slip of the tongue, in my view. I think he, I I think what we're seeing here is is President Biden's gut instincts on what he thinks the US should do to defend Taiwan. Um, I don't think, however, I don't think that means that the policy of strategic ambiguity has changed. The White House did come out and walk back Biden's remarks as they've done before. I think the thing to consider in this case um, is that Biden made, uh, gave this response this time um, against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. Um, and I think that the war in Ukraine now hangs over the Taiwan question in a sense. In fact, in his response, President Biden even compared you know, a potential Chinese uh, you know, uh, forceful uh, invasion of Taiwan To the situation in Ukraine um, and saying that, you know, it it, indicating it would be, you know, a disaster for for the region and for the world. Um, He was asked the question again, by the way, in the press avail later. And instead of clearing it up, he seemed to even, you know, double down on his initial response, right? So, uh, and the questioner, you know, uh, was highly specific and his response seemed pretty intentional in my mind, and I think probably in a sense to try to deter. Um, maybe he wanted to make the point that it would just be a disaster for China to do that. Um, China, of course, is gonna be irked, especially given that Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi apparently discussed at length Taiwan uh, during their last meeting. But I think, you know, look, China's dealing with uh, you know, COVID outbreaks, uh, it has economic issues, it has a party Congress coming up in the fall. I don't think China's going to necessarily escalate the situation beyond, you know, potentially flying sorties into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Um, they will, however, complain obviously as, as they did, uh, you know, in the, in the wake of Biden's remarks yesterday. Longer term, I think, you know, Beijing, could factor in a potential U.S. military response to an attack. Um, and what would that do? You know, China will continue to prepare its military capabilities. Uh, and that will, of course, add further risks to stability in the Taiwan Strait. This is an issue that is with us uh, for some time. We heard Henry Kissinger yesterday say that the U.S. and China should not put the Taiwan issue in the center of the rivalry, something to that effect. Um, but I think, unfortunately, it is there. It's one that's going to have to be handled very carefully at the very highest level between the two presidents.
2: Yeah. The um, and the Quad meeting, anything
3: on that? No, I think, you know, it's a it, it and, and the
2: and the Indo-Pacific economic. Um, what do they call it?
3: Indo-Pacific economic framework
2: framework that's what the F stands for yes
3: yeah um you know they launched the indo-pacific economic framework um I think it it uh, at this point it's very much a work in progress um you know the one of the things that I have heard Steve you know you you mentioned that I'm in Southeast Asia now and and I do hear often uh, from uh, experts scholars in the region their concern about the lack of a you know, commitment by the United States in its economic and trade approach to the region. Clearly, we do quite a bit on security. We've got AUKUS now, we've got the Quad, we've got our allies. We've upgraded our diplomacy, I think sending out officials in the region, that's appreciated, but I think they want much more in terms of economic and economics and trade. Uh, And the problem is that uh, the trade debate in the U.S. has changed and we're not willing to offer market access. And so the administration is putting forward other areas that are important, trade facilitation, supply chains, the digital economy, sustainable investment, anti-corruption. Whether these will be as appealing to the region as market access, I think, is something that people are skeptical about Uh, in a sense, you know, A lot of us would like the United States to get back in the CPTPP, um, but that doesn't seem to be, you know, in the offing here. And so I guess what I would say is this is the best that we've got right now and we're going to have to work with it. It's a work in progress. And we're going to have to see how it develops over time.
2: Um, We've got great questions from our members in the audience. Uh, This is for Ben and Elizabeth, from uh, Jeff Lehman. Uh, You noted that it is hard nowadays to offer folks back home a more complex narrative about conditions on the ground in China. Have you got any recommendation for ways to give such a narrative that are, are more rather than less effective? By the way, Jeff is in
4: Shanghai. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's a lot about speaking out Um, and, you know, I think it's easy when you're in China to self-censor. It's easy in China to feel insecure about speaking about the conditions Um, and uh, obviously both in both directions, because, you know, given the way the political dialogue is in the United States, it's also, you know, you're seen as somehow, you know, part of the problem if you provide a more constructive and positive and optimistic take on the the reality on the ground in China. And I think it's critical for people to espouse both. And there's obviously plenty of people, if you go on Twitter, that are uh, certainly describing the challenges of day-to-day life in China. Um, So I'm not not sure if anyone is self-censoring too much there, especially on Twitter amongst the expat community, say in Shanghai. Uh, But there are very fewer that are speaking up about uh, the positive nature of life in China. And also, you know, the, the reality on the ground that it is not a homogenous block of ideologies. It is a, a very diverse population that is very aware of what's going on in the world. And certainly at the outbreak of, say, the war in Ukraine, uh, there was uh, a lot of propaganda kind of pushed across social media that was quite counter to the narratives that we were reading about. In Western media. Um, But I I don't think that very, very, you know, I think most people in China today, certainly amongst the educated, are aware of of now the realities on the ground there and elsewhere. And I think, you know, what was fascinating when I was with Paul in in, in Shanghai, which has now become a de facto uh, decampment point for much of now the Chinese um, uh, technology as well as business uh, leadership. Um, who are there again, not necessarily because they have to be, but just because it's an easier place to live and work right now under the conditions. Um, you know, much more vocal and, um, and much more uh, unfiltered, obviously in their views on what's going on on the ground, particularly with regard to zero COVID. Um, but it's one where we have to speak out and we have to be voices both in terms of writing op-eds, speaking on panels, um, tweeting um, and, and counter the overall negativity of the, the dynamic and at least just provide transparency into um, into our own experiences and not be fearful that we will be shouted down by kind of the the, the, the mob in, in, in the West that doesn't want to hear positive or constructive narratives. Yeah. Elizabeth.
1: So I would just add to that, that it is indeed hard for the sort of balanced um, nuanced voice in either side to really be heard very clearly. One thing that um, I'm working with some people on is to um, bring together a group of diverse people thinking about China, but the, 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 the main thing they have in common is that they're open to hearing another point of view and that they're open to sort of possibly changing their own perspective across a dimension of kind of points of view about China and to bring them together in a um, an offsite private closed door kind of place to just share and just try in a small group to try to get people to be expanding how they think about China and how they think about the U.S.-China relationship and then seeing if these n- sort of nuanced or different perspectives can find some traction, as Ben was just saying, in op-eds in podcasts, in sort of short pieces, in various journals, et cetera, to try to populate the ecosystem with slightly broader perspectives, and not just one broader perspective, but a range of broader perspectives about China from the left to the right, so that the whole discourse can just widen a little bit. But again, this is an elite, this is a big question I struggle with all the time. Should we have sort of an elite influencing Strategy to try to change the situation, or is should we go after the hearts and minds of the American people? Should we be should the Ford Foundation be funding documentary films and broad based sort of kinds of engagement with the broad American population to try to change the perspective from the bottom up? Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Mm-hmm. We have limited resources, so we focus on a smaller group at the elite level, but I do think that it's probably a combination of both. And as Ben said, just people like us having the guts to speak out publicly and in, in audiences that are maybe less friendly than the one we're in right now.
2: Nancy, is it particularly challenging for Chinese Americans to speak to these issues or are they actually, it's? easier for Chinese-Americans?
0: Yes and no. And I'm sensitive that the chair of the Committee of 100 of fellow board member Governor Locke is on the call and and knows this area much better than I do. But I think yes and no. I think what we struggle with, even with the Committee of 100, they do a wonderful job of providing leadership and representation, is that just like all Chinese-Americans don't know Kung Fu or Kung Fu, we all don't know the cross street issue. Right? Why should we assume that a as someone of Chinese ancestry, or Taiwanese ancestry, understands a very complex and nuanced um, issue around the cross-strait relationship? And I think there's advocacy, which often is associated with Chinese Americans, and thinking about a lot of the work and the justice, and you know, after Tiananmen and trying to make information known. But then there's expert policy contribution, and that has to be objective, well-researched, academic. Um, trained scholars who are doing this type of work. And I think there's a sensitivity here where sometimes that those lines blur. And when those blur, I find that that's a little bit of a dangerous water to be in um, because of the biases that we have. My mother wanted independence. So my mother wants reunification. And then it kind of trickles into a rolling snowball of really complicated um, identity politics that lose a lot of, and they can be very loud. Right. Those identity politics can be very, very loud and they can be funded by very well funded lobby groups in D.C. as we have seen. Um, And those are dangerous because that noise really clouds um, the the sort of representation. You don't want to deny Chinese Americans or Taiwanese Americans a stake in that participation. At the same time, are they bringing the expertise at all times? Certainly on the Committee of 100 and other groups, a lot of expertise there. But, you know, not every Chinese American that walks through the Museum of Chinese America understands that cross-strait relationship. And are they sometimes assumed to? Yes. And sometimes are we still under the label of perpetual foreigner? So therefore, you must know Chinese art. You must know Chinese everything. Absolutely. So I think the fundamental thing that we still need to address across so many of these topics is education. And when can you start educating on a fundamental level from kindergarten through fifth grade, I start there and integrate some of these very important issues and just get the language right. It's Chinese American. It's an American of Chinese ancestry. Are the 82% of people who are anti-Chinese sentiment, were they? how many were Chinese American? I don't know. Um, are you talking about Euro-Americans only? And I think that there's a lot of subtleties that we sort of overlook and assume that that we understand. And the nuance, echoing Elizabeth, the nuance is, is, is abundant in so much of the US-China.
2: Tariffs, let me just talk about tariffs. Um, would you agree, all of you, with the statement that tariffs continue to punish lower income Americans and have not brought jobs back to the United States? Just a yes or no from each. I haven't asked all four of you. Yes or no? Paul?
3: I think they've had a negative impact on US jobs uh, and inflation, yes.
2: And punish lower income Americans.
3: Yes. Nancy?
2: This is supposed to be an easy question, guys.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Elizabeth, <laughs> Ben?
0: I guess the answer is yes.
2: Yeah, the answer. It the answer. Is really yeah. critical. I mean, so I think the answer is yes. Paul. Paul adds to it actually quite correctly. So why don't we get rid of them in exchange for reciprocal concessions from the Chinese? What somebody? What is going on? Maybe Paul is the right person to ask that question. Why, in this inflationary period, yeah. when it's so obvious, can we not
3: do this? Well, I can start. I'm sure others can add in. Um, Look, I think also to add to your list of questions, Steve, would be the fact that the US had a record trade deficit with China in 2021. So clearly, the Trump administration's goal of reducing the trade deficit doesn't appear to have worked out very well. Uh, And of course, we know China did not uh, meet the purchase commitments under the phase one, the Trump administration's phase one deal. There's a broader fact that China hasn't really budged on the structural issues that prompted the trade war in the first place around subsidies, IP theft, forced technology transfer. So no progress has been made there. So any way you look at it, it's difficult to see the the tariffs or the phase one deal in my mind as very successful. Now the factors I think that prevent the Biden administration from removing the tariffs, I think there's primarily two. One is their desire to maintain some leverage on China. Uh, there's a lot of issues at play. I, as I mentioned, subsidies, IP theft, forced technology transfer, um, giving up leverage, you want to get something in return. okay? Second is domestic politics. As we know, um, Biden administration does not want to look soft on China, certainly before the midterms, uh, especially, as I said, if he's not going to get tangible concessions from China. Uh, there was a uh, survey, the Chicago Council survey, released in October last year. Fifty-eight percent of Americans say trade between China and between China and the U.S. weakens U.S. national security. Um, and so, I think overall, it makes sense for the Biden administration to lift some tariffs, especially on non-strategic goods, to ease inflation. We heard uh, from the Treasury Secretary's office, we or the Treasury office, we heard. Dalip Singh recently say, why do you have tariffs on bicycles or apparels or underwear? But again, the administration is going to want to make sure it gets something in return from China if it does lift tariffs on certain American goods.
2: Leverage generally occurs when the other side is being hurt more than you are. And in this case, that is not-
3: yeah, so the I, leverage
2: I, issue is, is yeah. in my view. I would,
3: I would say the Biden administration would not, in my mind, would not have uh, imposed tariffs. Yes, but
2: impose mean, them, they can't walk away.
3: But um, they're there, and and the, even if it's necessarily bad leverage, I don't think you walk away from any leverage. I remember when I was in the. It's York.
2: it's not leverage, but okay. Um, not in my view, at least, but. Um, Anybody want to add on that or else? Because we got some great questions in the queue that I'd like to ask. Uh, Former head of AIT, American Institute in Taiwan, Doug Paul, asks, even optimists are having a hard time not being pessimistic. Looking ahead longer term, we have U.S. midterms coming and they look likely to fuel China skepticism in Congress. Taiwan faces elections in 2024, And the KMT is struggling and the DPP may be drawn further from its current cautious stance. And she will have passed the 20th party Congress Rubicon. So instability looms. Do you all agree? Or he asks, how do you see it? Nobody wants to touch that one.
0: I'll do a quick, this is not direct, uh, oh, yeah, just just very quickly and then I'll hand it over to you, Paul. I think the domestic tension in Taiwan and in the US is far greater than the to- domestic tensions in China. And, and I think that those are variables that we haven't really taken apart or broken up as much. That's a polarity that exists in the US, um, the fringe becoming more mainstream, Um, Taiwan, the tensions there around now, the movement of generations and no longer growing consciousness about identity, but a growing ownership of that identity is creating a lot of friction. Um, The crescendo of friction in the US and on Taiwan seem to be much greater than, there seems to be more consensus. I don't know if it's just the way the, the China media is working, but there seems to be more of a consensus majority rather than where we're dealing with a lot of tensions.
2: Anybody else want to just give a brief one, or I'll go to the next.
1: Well, I would just say what Nancy said adds, I think, to the kind of sense of of instability. Um, and so I, you know, I I'm not quite sure how to respond to this question because I I do. We're all sort of in a moment of really trying to be optimistic when it's very difficult to be optimistic. And I guess this is why I try to think about sort of decentering US China relations not to say it's not a consequential relationship but if that's the only thing we're thinking about that's all that's where all of our energy and all of our anxiety and and all of our attention is here at a place that seems really difficult to to solve or unwind where Nancy points out there are other domestic issues in all the countries including China now there's more consensus but they have a lot of issues that they're facing as well, and then there there are other gigantic parts of the world uh, that also we ought to be thinking about, and and it just feels to me like perhaps if we dialed back our stress level about China and the U.S. and tried to put it in a multilateral context or to try to um, decenter that we might be hopefully finding some different pathways forward, different allies, different partners, different ways to try to address some of the global instability. I mean, and now we have food insecurity, energy. I mean, the whole, it's not just the United States and China that are in a period of instability. The whole world feels to me to be in a position of instability. So I hope that probably made you feel even more right. pessimistic.
3: Um, uh, just real quick, Steve. Just a two finger, if I could, on this. I I, I feel I'm obligated to respond to Doug's question. Doug hired me into the Carnegie Endowment, and uh, it's a great question. You know, one of the things I hear in Southeast Asia from experts is U.S. and China just just cooperate on these very important global issues, and everything will be better. Uh, and that will inject a great degree of positiveness into the relationship. And there's certainly a number of areas where we should be cooperating: and climate change, the ongoing pandemic, future pandemics, trying to prevent non-proliferation. But I think that tensions in the relationship often get in the way of the U.S. and China achieving meaningful cooperation on these global issues. They're they're much, you know, it's much easier said than it is done. And frankly, we don't actually really have a great track record of cooperating on these big issues. And so. In my mind here, I think you know one idea that, that I often talk about is perhaps a better approach really is for the U.S. and China just to really begin on small issues to try to address the you know the low-hanging fruit if there is in the relationship, um, journalist access, consulate reopenings, um, things you know establishing sort of a problem-solving mode for the US-China relationship, where we're actually trying to take on, you know, not the global issues because they're so ambitious and big, um, but issues in the bilateral relationship make progress. And over time, you know, that could lead to negotiations on more fundamental structural issues, but start small and and over time, get more ambitious. You're quoting my article. I
2: don't know if you realize you're quoting my article, Paul, but I read that (laughs) long time ago, play small ball start with you know there are 12 things which we can do which are quite easy to do together, not particularly not particularly politicized, reopening consulates, visas. Uh, by the way, I view tariffs that way because it's a win-win um, and a whole bunch of other things that we start developing habits of cooperation. Um, can I ask, I guess this would be for Paul and Elizabeth. you think some of the programs that have moved from China to Taiwan will return to China? Elizabeth. That's asked by Tom Gold, that's why I'm asking that, who has a longer, except for Jan, he has the longest relationship with the National Committee of anybody I know.
1: I'd actually be interested in what Tom thinks about that question, to be honest. Tom, um, can you type in an answer? Because
2: you may be talking about the Stanford Center.
1: I mean, I... I, I can't speak for any of those organizations or institutions that left and for the reasons why they did and whether or not that they would come back, but it, it would occur to me that um, for the same reason that the Ford Foundation is committed to, and Carnegie is committed to having a footprint in China, it is an enormous global power. We need to understand it even if we don't disagree, if we don't agree with it. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to engage with it or, or solve any kind of global problem. So I think it's important that institutions that can be in China and operate there that can contribute knowledge into all of our better understanding of what that place is and what its intentions are and what are the entry points for collaboration and cooperation really should be there. And so I hope that these institutions come back when the time is right.
2: I'll right, just we, add to We're this. running out of
3: time. I have what, two okay. questions I want go ahead, sorry. Just, just very quickly. I agree with Elizabeth. I mean, Carnegie is an institution that wants to be there, as I said, on the ground, working with Chinese scholars. That is our hope. Um, and we'll do it as much as we possibly can. A lot depends on what China does, of course, right? Do, is China going to open back up uh, once we get beyond a, a, a COVID uh, era? Um, a lot of people are skeptical about the degree to which China will open up. But if it does, then I think Elizabeth is right. Uh, institutions like the ones that she talked about, like Carnegie Endowment and others, are committed to being there.
2: Well, Lee Ke-Chang certainly thinks it's gonna reopen. Um, Sheila Johnson asks, why, the, the, why does the USA want a new agreement rather than entering and modifying the CPTPP? So I'll leave that for one of you. And then Mike Lampton, this will be our final question. I refuse to do a program that doesn't uh, mention Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So he says, in your domain of interest, how important was the February 4 joint statement of No Limits Partnership uh, combined with China's unwillingness to endorse sovereignty as supreme principle regarding Ukraine? So who wants to take? CPTPP. Ben you want to do that?
4: Paul might be the better one there.
2: Why why this yeah. new framework rather than CPTPP?
3: Well, I think it's a great question and I think there's a lot of a lot of us who would like to see the US back in the CPTPP. We now have three large trade agreements in the region. CPTPP, we've got RCEP and the The digital partnership agreement, Uh, China is in RCEP, China has applied to CPTPP and is interested in DEPA, the last one. Uh, In the Indo-Pacific region, as my colleague Evan Feigenbaum likes to say, neither India nor the United States, uh, which define that Indo-Pacific region, are in any of those agreements. The problem, of course, is the domestic debate on trade. Um, And that flipped over on its head uh, during the Trump administration, and I think probably a lot of Democrats think that President Trump got elected because of the fact, and you hear a lot about the the foreign policy for the middle class, that our foreign policy and trade agreements were not working for the middle class, and that we need to find a new way uh, to engage economically, Uh, and in trade in the Asia Pacific. And that's what the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is supposed to be all about.
2: Ukraine. Who wants to?
1: Elizabeth. I can can try. So as as a global foundation, the Ford Foundation is interested in global institutions and um, sort of solving problems globally. And so this, the. The sort of way China responded to Ukraine and to the Russian invasion, and that and the and the um, agreement with with Russia, appears to push them closer together, or caused us to push them closer together in a way that's been very disruptive, of things like if you think about the G20. So the G20 is a place where we might have been able to address some global issues related to economic recovery post COVID or other kinds of of sort of very important food security other economic issues maybe now that platform has been disrupted by this kind of behavior and so I think in in not so much in the China office of the Ford Foundation where I think this is less of a of a disruptive of a disruptive move broadly if you're a global organization trying to think about solving problems globally and collaboratively this has been um, quite disruptive
3: I'll just add two quick things. I think, um, I think it's had a significant impact on U- US official views uh, on China. Um, three weeks, as I said, through less than three weeks before the Russian invasion. That's pretty significant. Um, and I think a lot of Chinese are, are as I said before, um, questioning the, the wisdom of that. But what uh, is causing uh, quite a bit of concern now is the domestic rhetoric. Uh, coming out of China, the propaganda, the state media, that which, which latches on to Russian disinformation campaigns, using Russian talking points, um, it's been raised in senior channels between our governments. Uh, U.S. has expressed concern about that, and it doesn't appear to be shifting. And second, I, I would note that China and Russia flew strategic bombers over the Sea of Japan, when President Biden uh, was was in Japan with the Quad. Uh, And that's just something else that, of course, will will reinforce the strategic partnership and what it means for the United States. Um, And so, yes, I think that the February 4th statement was pretty damaging to the relationship. Uh, I think it could get worse if China violates the sanctions. Steve, you rightly point out that they have not yet. but it would get much worse if China provided some material support in the way of uh, yes. military equipment or ammunition. But again, I don't see the Chinese taking steps in that regard yet.
2: <laughs> I love the adding of the yet.
3: Um, it the caveat it. The, um,
2: would you expect the Chinese media to report on the resignation of the Russian diplomat uh, yesterday with the scathing letter about he's never been so embarrassed by Russia and that Russia it's, its a humiliation to be a diplomat. Would you expect China's state media to report that?
3: I'll bet you hundred dollars they don't.
2: They did. I just won a hundred bucks. I watched it on this morning's television. I was very surprised. I see it, it was a very, I can <laughs> get the clip and send it. The, um,
3: gonna get fired. In statement, it, was, yeah. it was a
2: they actually had the letter at the uh, th- that he wrote at the end of the interview. Um, they had a clip of the reporter saying, do you think Russia is going to find you a traitor? And this, you know, the interview obviously was it's in Chinese. This part they played in English and he said they already do. And then the clip ended. I think this is a good illustration. I'm glad to hear that. I hope that they continue to play. My remarks when I said Joanne Lai would not support Chinese policy towards Russia's invasion of Ukraine were
4: run.
1: So I think Ben is going to say what I'm going to say. Why don't you go, Ben?
4: Well, I was just going to say from a business perspective, again, there was this again. uh, it's always this same kind of dialogue just like Steve and Paul have had where the narrative for instance at the outbreak of the war was that the Chinese technology and other business uh, you know firms were going to rush into to the to market and take advantage of the displacement and the divestment of all the US companies and, uh, and all those that were departing the market and instead it has been, the most toxic environment one could imagine Huawei is not going in Xiaomi are running for the hills. Uh, you saw the, uh, the export uh, data where it's essentially Chinese imports into Russia that have crashed the overall import market. so it's it's just a steady reflection of the dynamic in this relationship and how it's presented and packaged often again by by Western media or political elites that, this what would appear to be obvious narrative that China was going to take advantage of this moment in Russia to supplant Western and particularly American business interests has actually had the exact opposite effect and it's the Chinese who are running further away from the market in many instances than their European counterparties. Elizabeth, was that what you were going to say? Uh,
1: well, not not exactly. But I was going to say, it's interesting the fact that Paul bet you hundred dollars and you won hundred dollars is really an example of maybe we don't really understand exactly what the dynamic is going on in China, right? That the fact that this was published,
2: I was, and, I was and, amazed. I was like, and
1: we are amazed, right? The fact that we're amazed perhaps is part of um, just. Is evidence that we, we don't know enough about what's going on and that if we are on the ground, we could see that this has been shifting, right? Right. The the way that the Chinese media has been either using Russian talking points or moving away from doing that and, and broadening its coverage is, I think, a real a real thing on the ground that's important for us all to understand. I hope that's the case. I mean,
3: the vast evidence suggests that. To date, China has not done that. The propaganda, the state media, the official rhetoric from the podium at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is Mm. very anti-US. It blames the United States. It blames NATO and NATO expansion. It relieves Russia of any responsibility for the invasion. It is now blaming the tariffs for causing the economic turmoil across the globe. it's interesting that this one journalist, you know, mentioned this retiring Russian diplomat,
0: retiring. But
3: how, how significant is it, uh, you know, I, I find myself skeptical, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's a turn of the tide either. Um, again, this has been raised at very senior levels, and I hope that it is, but you can, you can certainly cause me, call me skeptical, but I'll be gladly give Steve his hundred dollars.
2: The, the Actually, Margo has just texted me that I did see it, she said, but there is, there's a report that the report that I saw has been censored. So my, my, you know, I always sometimes, I think the censors, they get a keyword and they, they, Sometimes, oh, whatever, and they let it go. And then when they try and replay it, somebody goes, you can't do that. It's an imperfect, um, it's an imperfect system. But I think to Ben's point that we always need to be cognizant of the fact that it is, there is not a monolithic view in China, and that there is a broad spectrum of views which you know people express in many different ways. And, and I think, you know. We have heard that in part tonight, but you have well represented the next generation of the national committee. I'm proud to have all of you on the board. This has been a—I see virtually nobody has hung up. Uh, The entire crowd has stayed with us the whole time because this has been a riveting uh, educational program, and that's the function of the committee is to educate. But thank you all. I will see you all bright or the the four of you bright and early tomorrow morning but thank you all and thank you for joining us tonight
1: thank you you.
0: everyone
1: for more interviews videos and links to events like this one visit us at www.ncuscr.org